We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Certainly, um, as we walk through the centuries, I think one of the things that we're all picking up on is that we have not only a lot to be grateful for and what God has done in the past, but we have an incredible amount to be grateful for about what God is doing right now, currently, in and through our lives. So tonight, we're picking up what I believe to be probably the most um, extensive two centuries in church history to try to cover in one Wednesday night. In fact, um, this, this set, th- th- these 200 years are so important that when we get through with the church history study in the next couple of weeks, we're going to begin a brand new series on Wednesday night, and we're going to be studying the five solas. I'll give you, um, if you want to study that, look up what the five solas of the Reformation are. We're going to spend two weeks on each of the five solas. So it's going to be a 10-week study on Wednesday night. I think it will be an incredible follow-up, not only to church history, but in the Reformation. So that's your homework to find out what the five solas are and what we in the church understanding that. So tonight we're going to jump in and talking about the 15th and 16th century. And the way I think best to do that is we're going to look at specific lives and some things that how they lived their life and how it impacted the 5th and 16th century. So we're going to start off in the 15th century and we're going to talk about a man you see there by the name of Jan Hus. His studies proved to him that the New Testament and the church of his day were at odds, so he began to preach about his concerns. He's excommunicated, and he's urged to repudiate his writings. The reason that I put Jan Huss on here, um, of all the people that we could have talked about, is that we begin to see a pattern in what happens. When the Reformation took place, as with any revival, somebody picks up a Bible Somebody reads that Bible. That Bible changes their life, and because it changes their life, they then begin to see that what they are learning through the Bible may be different than what the church or what culture may be currently teaching. Said person then begins to stand up and preach the truth that they have been studying. Upon preaching the truth that they have been studying, one of most of the time, two things happen. Number one, people begin to repent and give their lives to Christ, which causes a true revival. A true revival will always be a threat to a false church. A true revival is always a threat to a false church. So when God's people begin to hear God's voice and begin to actually be exposed to the Word of God, The church of tradition, the church of power, the church of ecclesiology that is more interested in central power and obtaining their control begins to kick back. And so what they would do is demand that someone recant. If they had written something, if they had preached something, and and that's the the old way, if you think about the playground, when you said, you got to take it back. I'm going to make you take it back. you got to take it back. So they would threaten them with torture. They would threaten them with death. Please tell everyone that you lied, that, that you're taking your teaching back. But somebody like Jan Huss refuses, and he makes this statement. He tells the church council at the time that he will be happy to take anything that he's taught back, that he'd be happy to throw and burn away all of his writings if anyone in the church could find in Scripture where he erred. If you will show me in the, in the Word of God 
where I have gone wrong, then I will recant. They not only could not, but they refused to, and he was burned at the stake. Um, we begin a whole series then of what leads up to what is the, the Great Reformation. Jan Huss, another man, you see his name there, Jarmo Savignola, a Dominican monk in Florence, Italy, gained the reputation as an expositor of Scripture. That doesn't seem like a big deal now, but it was a big deal then because instead of just taking a liturgy, instead of just reading what the church said to read, he began to take the Bible and he began to teach the Bible and huge crowds come to hear him. So to silence him, the church, and, and it's amazing, politics has not changed that much. The church offers him a promotion. If you will quit preaching what you're preaching, we will give you a bigger title, a better job, and more money. But he refuses this, So, and when he declined, he was burned to death. You starting to see a pattern? So what you see in the pattern of their lives is we're seeing a seedbed that's, that's actually it's brimming up with these two men and then we see it come full scale in the, the 16th century as it rolls on and it was one of the greatest moments for the church in the whole 2000, the whole 2000 year history. We see the largest revival since Pentecost takes place at this time. So we're going to over the next few minutes, highlight some of the major players in what is known as the Protestant Reformation. So when we say the Reformation, and, I, and I've, we've taught this before, but we need to understand that at one point, um, the church, though it was divided, was the Catholic Church. When we say the Roman Catholic Church, that was the church. There weren't other churches, that was the church. They were the authority. They were. Um, they decided from the popes to um, every one of the priests that was appointed. The hierarchy that happened. Um, all of it was based from the church. The church had become corrupt. The pope had become was corrupt. The priesthood had become corrupt. It had become a money making power-broking scheme, and over and over again, we see this throughout the course of history. But now, we have these men like Huss and Savignola who have laid this groundwork, and all of the sudden, we go through what is known as the Great Reformation. Now, for something to be reformed, what, is ha what has to happen? You have to change something. So when we say that we have protested, if someone is a Protestant, that means that something had to be protested. What was protested? What was protested was the theology and the teachings and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. So when anyone today, right now, says that they are Protestant, you may hear that word. Oftentimes now, we don't use that word anymore because we hear the word evangelical. Sometimes you'll hear that word. But what that tradition comes from is that there was a protest. And that great protest started with a man by the name of Martin Luther. You see there, um, Luther was knocked off a horse, terrified. And then he finds himself in this enormous thunderstorm. He thinks he's going to die in this thunderstorm. So he vows to be a monk. Probably everyone in here has had one of those moments. I don't know if you've 
ever prayed those prayers before where you're like, God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Oh, God, just rescue me. If you'll just get me down here, I promise I'll never come back. I'll, make a, I'll, I'll be honest with y'all. I can tell you, I can tell you, I can take you to the spot I was standing when I prayed one of those prayers. Like a fool as a freshman in college, I loaded up with a bunch of morons and drove down I-59 to New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Um, had never done that before, thought that was just going to be awesome. So if you're going to go, right, we head straight for Bourbon Street. And we get on Bourbon Street and the crowd if, begins to move in a way that you can't resist it. You are just part of a flow of people. You couldn't get off a side street. We're going down this whole section. It is, I mean, just when, when people say debauchery, some of you, I mean, just the filthiest, nastiest thing. And I'm on that street, and I can remember just, just praying. I, I remember just telling the Lord, Lord, if you will get me out of here, I promise I'll never come back. I will never come back to this again. And I have kept my word to him. I have not been back since then. And I do not plan on going back. I had all of it I wanted. But probably at some point in your life, maybe it was something like that. Or maybe it was very serious. God, if you will just do this, I will whatever. So he begins to bargain with the Lord and the way he keeps up his end of the bargain after living from being thrown off the horse and surviving this thunderstorm, he goes and becomes a monk. But he remains troubled for all of his time while he's there that his righteousness isn't good enough. In other words, I've done everything I know to do. I've even become a monk. I've studied. I've given my life. I'm doing everything I can do, but I don't feel like it's good enough. In other words, he felt like if he died, he was still going to go to hell because it didn't matter what he did. He couldn't, he couldn't seem to ever feel like he had earned the favor of God. He didn't ever feel like that he had actually gotten done enough. So all through this, he begins to study, and he starts studying Romans. It is amazing. Most revivals in throughout the church begin with a study of Romans because I believe it is the greatest treatise of soteriology, the study of salvation that you will find that's ever been penned. And so he begins to study, and it's amazing when you begin to study the Bible, and he begins to study in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he begins to try to wrestle with what it means that the righteous will live by faith. What does it mean that the righteous will live by faith? Anytime that we have that, comp that thought, he begins to think about how, what is it going to look like for me to truly have faith and begin convinced that the righteousness of Christ was a free gift and it had to be received by faith, that there wasn't enough he could do. So as he gets radically saved by reading the Word of God, his eyes become opened and he realizes that there's a lot of issues and problems in the church. In fact, as he begins to look around, he realizes there's no preaching of salvation by grace through faith, that it's all works-based righteousness, that it's all this is what you must do to be saved and this is how you earn salvation and this is how you buy salvation. And, and he even began to, to see that inside the church, the practices of, of indulgences were the, that you could buy your family members way out of a place called purgatory, which, by the way, is still a Catholic doctrine, and it's an unbiblical doctrine. That there, they, they say that there's heaven, hell, and a place called purgatory, or an in-between state. And the Catholic Church taught as a fundraising effort 
that the way that you could guarantee that your family members would be ushered from purgatory into heaven was that you would purchase indulgences. And by purchasing those indulgences, you then were granted by the priest or by the pope a certificate guaranteeing that your loved one had been granted access out of purgatory into heaven. And so as Romans 1 is flooding Luther, he's recognizing this that you can't buy it. You, you can't earn it. There, there's no way. The righteous have to live by faith. So he begins to study what this looks like in, as far as the church as a whole. And he comes up with 95 theses or 95 objections that he has that he sees that the way that the church is acting in an unbiblical manner. And he takes those 95 theses and he nails them to the church at Wittenberg, Germany. He did not mean for this to start a revolution. He meant for it to start a conversation. He was not wanting to be kicked out of the church. He was wanting the church to reform. He was wanting the church to change. He was wanting the church to see the error of its ways. He was wanting the church to adopt the true gospel. He was wanting the church to read Romans. He was wanting the church to experience this. So he nails this on the door so that it could be a talking point, so that they would have a list of things to discuss. But instead of becoming that, what ends up happening is, is they con this condemnation of the church for failing to preach the gospel what we find out through time is, is that not only did they not, were they not willing to discuss it, but they threw Luther out of the church and condemned him as a heretic. But as they're condemning him, he continues to write and continues to preach. And people begin to get not only radically saved, but among other people inside the Roman Catholic Church, as they begin to read his theses, there begins to be this protest and as they protest what's going on inside the church, there begins to be people that are breaking out of the Roman Catholic Church and becoming what we now know as Protestants because there was this Reformation. They bring, Luke, they bring Luther in and they demanded that Luther recant. You must take back your teaching, take back the theses, take, about, take back your writing. He and Philip Melanchthon, two of the greatest reformers, worked hand in hand. And one of the greatest quotes out of Christendom that doesn't come out of the Scripture came from the words of Martin Luther when he looked at the entire council and his words were, Here I stand, I can do no other. I have said what I'm going to say. Whatever may fall, this is the truth is based on the Word of God. But it wasn't just Luther. You had men like Ulrich Zwingli, who brought the Bible approach to ministry in Zurich, and he began to preach through the New Testament. Sometimes when we read that, we think, well, how simple is that? He took a Bible and he began to preach through the Bible, specifically the New Testament. And he challenged the church on every point that differed from Scripture and ended up writing 67 of his own theses. In fact, if you're going to, to look up Luther's 95 theses and Zwingli's 67 theses, Zwingli's are actually easier, they're more to the point, they're more simple. His 67 theses, if you read them, they are straight out of Scripture and he gives specific points where they don't agree with the church and his congregation. Now, so the way that it's set up, he has an individual congregation inside where he is pastoring there in Zurich. But from top down, the way the leadership structure is organized in the church, the 
top leadership is telling him to stop and his congregation is telling him to keep going. So the people he was pastoring had actually gotten saved and it had started listening to the Bible and quit caring about what the Pope thought. And they quit caring about what the archbishops thought and what the high councils thought because they knew the man of God that was before him and they knew that he was preaching truth. So the congregation backs him and is set afire for God. So now we have this combination of Luther and Zwingli and a man named William Tyndall comes along. And when Tyndall comes along, he dares to translate the New Testament into English so that people could actually read it for themselves. He thought he would be supported, but instead he was put into exile. So part of the Reformation was, all right, Tyndall says, why don't we just make it readily, why don't we just make it readily available for everyone in here to be able to read it for themselves? Because if you can study scripture and you can study the doctrines of the church, then you'll be able to compare them side by side. When you compare them side by side, it should be that Scripture wins out. But the church didn't want people to have the Word of God, so they begin to do everything that they can to suppress this translation. So how do they do that? The king says the way that we're going to go about that is we're going to buy every copy. We'll just buy every copy and we'll destroy all of them. That sounds like it would have been a great plan, but the problem was that Tyndall ended up making so much money off of the church buying the first edition that he was able to improve it and make a second edition and publish even more better quality with a better translation and it spreads like wildfire. We still today have the Tyndall Bible Society. Tyndall's last words that were ever recorded, I think this, this really... It shows the heart of somebody who loves the gospel, who doesn't just love being right, but loves the gospel. The last words that he was ever heard, that ever spoken, were, Lord, please open the King of England's eyes. In other words, God, save him. Help him to see the truth. And then we wouldn't be able to have a conversation about the Reformation without mentioning a man by the name of John Calvin. Um, if you read a short biography on the life of Calvin, it, it is one of the more convicting biographies you will ever read because you will find yourself asking the question, how could anyone in that short of a life accomplish as much as he was able to accomplish? Um, the heart of his work was exegeting the Bible, yet his influence affected theology, worship, church government, economics, social work. And many people will argue that if you had to pick one person who has influenced society, more than, more, his writings, more than anything else outside of the Bible, it would be the work of Calvin, his institutes and everything that John Calvin wrote. We obviously, if we were talking about the Reformation, there were dozens of people that as we walk through this, that we would not be able, that we don't have time to cover every one of their lives. But I think it's important to really understand that what took place in those moments are also now the very things that have to take place if we're going to see Reformation or revival in the church today. Um, there is an effort now to talk about pragmatism. Pragmatism brings about 
what we see in seeker-sensitive theology. It's what we see in word of faith theology. It's what you see in name it and claim it theology. It's what you see in much of what takes place in especially the Western church. And when I say pragmatism, this is pragmatism. Well, let's just figure out what works and then do that. Now, that may seem like a great practice in business. That's a terrible practice when it comes to church. Because when you're asking what works, who defines works? What do we mean it works? Does it mean you're filling up buildings? David Blaine can fill up a building. And he's a magician. ACDC could fill up buildings. They weren't leading churches. At any point in time, right now, you could fill up an arena of people. The Superdome will be absolutely filled up for football games, even when the Saints are having a losing season. So if you're coming at it from a pragmatic approach, you'd be able to say, well, obviously that works, so that must be what we need to do. When you take notes from the Reformation and take notes from people like this, what you see is, is that when you dedicate yourself to Scripture, when you dedicate yourself to the Gospel, when you dedicate yourself to the five solas, remember your homework, when you dedicate yourself to justification by faith alone, when you understand that grace alone is what saves, when Christ alone is who's magnified, when Scripture alone is what's studied, when God's glory alone is all that you're passionate about, when those things begin to be the motivation, then you quit caring what the world thinks. These are people, can you imagine? Basically they were told you can either recant. When you say burned at the stake, and I don't want to be graphic for the sake of being graphic, but you were impaled, and after you were impaled, then you were lit on fire. They knew that's what was coming. They were hated, by, often by friends, by family. Their work lives were cut off. Monetarily, they were cut off. They were excommunicated by the church. Now, that may not seem like any big deal to us today because that doesn't sound like a church you'd want to be a part of. Well, when the whole church tradition was, the church and the priest and the pope decided whether or not you would even have a, whether or not you were even accepted by God. They had the power according to them to decide whether you went to heaven or hell. And when you began to preach out about these things, then you were excommunicated by the church. You were left alone to decide something. And that is, do I really believe this? Is this really worth dying for? Is this really something that I can say, here I stand, I can do no other? You can take my life, you could take my family, you can take my church, you could take everything that you desire to take from me, but you need to know that I will not be moved because the gospel is what we stand on. Now for these men that were willing to stand on those things, when they walked through these things, we see in this Protestant Reformation that even today, not only would it be a stand against any form that would stand against the gospel, but as Luther stood in these 95 theses, it wasn't just the indulgences. He came very hard against the papacy. And to come against the papacy, to come against the pope, to come against the priesthood was for him to assault what they believed 
was their ordained power. And he had the nerve to say this. There is not a person in a congregation that needs an earthly priest. Because Luther explained that Hebrews says that we have a great high priest and his name is Jesus. So you had people going through men to get forgiveness that men did not have the authority to grant and that the only way that you could receive forgiveness was by the shed blood of Christ on the cross and that salvation had to come because He granted it as the great high priest and that no man has the power to forgive sins and that no matter how many prayers you prayed or rosary beads you counted, that you could count rosary beads and say Hail Marys until you found yourself in hell if you did not discover the grace of God. He tried to explain that baptism had absolutely no value for salvation, that it was not, uh, that it was not, it gave no ability to bring salvation, but was only a symbol of what God has done. He fought against a doctrine that tooth and nail the Catholic Church still holds on to today, the doctrine of transubstantiation. They teach and believe that by taking and eating the cracker and drinking the wine, they believe that actually a miracle takes place every time that it is offered and that you are not eating a symbol of the body of Christ, you are eating the body of Christ. Now, if that took a moment to sink in, I want to say that again. They believe that when you take the bite of the cracker, they teach that an actual miracle takes place and that cracker becomes the body of Jesus. And when you sip the wine, it turns into the actual blood of Jesus. You say, well, why would you need to teach that? Because they teach that you are saved by taking the Lord's Supper. So you need the Lord's Supper to confer grace. Now what's different in that and what we believe? Let me make sure you understand something. Those little nasty crackers. That stale tasting grape juice. There's nothing in that. Nothing. You aren't saved by that. The reason that we take that is because of we're symbolizing what God has already done. Luther was willing to stand up against everything that said there's no man-made precept. There's nothing that man can do. And when the church loses sight of the fact that the reason we do what we do is not to earn the favor of God. Because and this is something today that needs to be preached from the rooftops. If you were going to do enough to earn the favor of God, what would you have to do? How much would you have to do to earn the favor of God? By the way, how good would you have to be? If you had to be good enough for God to love you, how good would you have to be? Anybody know? Perfect. Perfect. That's all you have to do to go to heaven. There's two ways to heaven. Now, if you're going to... Say, hold on, wait a minute, I'm ready for some heresy. I, you've always said there's one. There's actually two ways to heaven. One of, the first way is to be completely perfect. Sinless, spotless, blameless, perfect. That's one way. The problem is all we like sheep 
have gone astray. We've gone our own way. You're fallen. You have no ability. You were born in sin. You live in iniquity. You're a hater of God. That's what the Bible says. So the only other way is by Jesus. So if the answer is there was anything other, there's nothing you could do, you can't be good enough, then all of a sudden, like Luther, one day somebody has got to, and I don't care what age someone is, they're so broken over their sin, Luther had the thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've given my life to the church and I'm not good enough. All I've done, I've become a monk and I'm not good enough. And he sat in his bedroom and he shuddered because he realized if he died he would go to hell. And any works-based faith will take you there. Every other religion besides a biblical gospel is a works-based faith. Every cult is a works-based faith. And anything other than salvation by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of Jesus alone, is a works-based gospel. And if the true church doesn't hold on to the Reformation, Protestant, biblical gospel, we will find ourselves in the same place that the church has found itself throughout history when it founds it founds itself on heretical doctrine that is not dedicated to the Word of God, which is why I encourage you all the time, read the Bible. That's, that's so simple. Read the Bible. If you want to have revival in your life, read the Bible. Study the Bible. Give your life to the Bible. Hold your life up to the precepts of the Bible. And all of a sudden you recognize that the Bible tells us exactly what God requires. And when we understand what God requires, the first thing that it sets us free to do is not go, oh, wow, I'm great. Right? Do you remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and he says, he says, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus lists a bunch of commandments. And that, that text used to bother me horribly. I used to, I never understood that. That was one of my least favorite stories that Jesus ever told. Because I thought this is so odd. Because he comes up to Jesus and he lists all these things. And Jesus begins to, to list commandments. And he just gives some of the commandments. Just a few. And what does the man say? He said, those I have kept since my youth. The problem was the young man didn't even understand the state of his own soul. The Ten Commandments are never given to show you how righteous you are. If you read the Ten Commandments and come away thinking, wow, I'm really a great person, you've missed the whole point of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are to indict you. And Jesus' point was that the man would say, oh, I've messed up on every one of those. But he doesn't get it because he's self-righteous, just like everyone that hasn't understand the gospel. He said, oh, I've done all of these. So Jesus says, well, let me just hit you where it counts. Why don't you sell everything you've got and give it to the poor? He says, is that what it takes to be saved? No. What it takes to be saved is to trust Jesus because you recognize that you're a wretch and that there's no righteousness inside of us. Drives us to the gospel over and over and over and over again. I pray for a reformation all the time in the hearts and the lives of people. 
I love reading biographies of men like I've talked about tonight because I want to learn from their courage. I want to be that kind of sold out. I want to lead that kind of people that are that committed to the gospel and that in love with the Word of God. And so as we read about these people, it's not that long ago. In the economy of time, it's not that long ago. And what has happened before can happen again. So we learn from the past to inform the present so we can live for the future. So, Lord Jesus, we do bow before you. And we're thankful for how you have called and how you have commissioned our lives. We thank you, Lord, for people that we've studied tonight. We thank you for men like Calvin and Tyndall and Zwingli and Luther. Lord, we thank you that they were willing to pick up their Bible and read. But, God, that they were courageous enough as well to share Lord, may we be bold in our witness, accurate in our theology, and pure in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.